0: This is Eye on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there, and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education special podcast from the 27th of May. On the programme today, we discussed teen internships, as this is the first summer under-18s will be allowed to do work experience in the UAE. Plus, as the country announces a wholesale shake-up of the education system, we took a look at the future of education, everything from what should be taught and how it should be taught, in order to prepare our children for the future world of work. Plus, we heard from the Dean of the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation as their first class graduates. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Now, we've got breaking education news on the programme today. Uh, A story that's just come through uh, detailing the new owner of one of Dubai's oldest not-for-profit schools. Uh, Jebel Ali School has officially been privatised. Now, this school was established in 1977 and parents were today informed that the school has now been sold to Talim Group, which is, of course, an education provider here in the United Arab Emirates. They own lots of schools, uh, both here and abroad. And joining us on the line now to talk us through Through this uh, new story, talk us through this new ownership, is Alan Williamson. He is the CEO of Talim. Hi, Alan. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Georgia. uh, I'm doing very well. It's been a busy morning, but a, a fantastic one for Jebo Ali School and Talim and also for the city of Dubai.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us on the programme today. I know uh, there must be lots and lots of demands on your time. Tell us a little bit about why Talim Group decided to take over Jabal Ali School.
2: Yeah, well, as, as you say, uh, Jabal Ali School has been part of the Dubai environment for a long time. It's, it's a Dubai institution and um, the school moved to its present circumstances uh, its present situation uh, in Damak and um, it faced several financial challenges uh, since the, the move to a 3 to 18 school. Halima um, have a government entity shareholding. We're a very proud part of the UAE landscape, and, and uh, just in terms of your introduction there, we operate. Uh, only in the UAE, uh, and we have, we have very proud uh, Emirati ownership. Um, and we saw it as part of our duty to Dubai to uh, work with the Jebel Ali School Board, who have been absolutely tremendous and supportive through this process. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, we've stepped in to support uh, Jebel Ali School and, and support the community, of Jebel Ali School. Um, don't get me wrong. This is an opportunity to bring the Jebel Ali School into our UK curriculum portfolio. As you mentioned, we have very good and outstanding schools in the Dubai British Schools Group. Um, but we also, George, see it as a union of hearts and minds. The the values of Talim uh, as a UAE-owned uh, Operation schools group and the values of uh, Jebel Ali school align and and that is something that uh, Tarek the the chair of the Jebel Ali school board and the whole Jebel Ali school board and their leadership team have felt in this journey.
0: What does it mean for parents because many chose Jebel Ali school because they like the not-for-profit model Uh, I imagine there might be some concerns raised by, by parents over the next few weeks
2: yeah i mean i i could uh, answer that question with my heart or my head um you know i always smile I, i've got a very good relationship with the the not for profit schools in dubai but I, you know i al i always smile um because in terms of values uh there there isn't as big a difference in my opinion between the not for profit and for profit schools if you uh, stepped in front of a parent of Dubai British School, Jumeirah Parker, Dubai British School, Emirates Hills, and asked them if their child is cared for and, and valued and their strong pastoral care, um, I don't think you would get any difference in the answers between uh, a parent in a for-profit and a, and a not-for-profit school. Um, I know uh, Dubai Eye Business Breakfast very well. If we were talking about the economics of this, it's, it's also fascinating in that, you know, when you put a lot of investment into a school, and, and we're talking hundreds and millions of dirhams, um, you, a school goes through a, a very um, expensive J-curve, what I, what I call a J-curve, where there's a, a huge investment in, in capex and building and land and teachers um, and it actually usually takes a school nine or ten years to become profitable. So even Tulim's most profitable school, in essence, I say with a smile, is still a not-for-profit school for a long, long time. And we've put today, and thank you to the Talim board, uh, a huge investment into Jebo Ali School. Um, but I, I say with a smile, it'll be a long time before maybe I shouldn't say with a smile as the CEO, be a long <laughs> time, before, uh you know Jebel Ali School becomes uh, a profitable part of the Talim organisation. This is an investment in us, in the community, uh, and, and as I said, for, for a historic institution uh, founded in 1977, we we very much saw this as, as a duty uh, to the community of Jebel Ali.
0: Now, I know there's a debenture model that's used by the school. Uh, parents have already paid debentures, and, and and I know that that's one of the major fee structures at the school. Is that set to change? And what would happen to parents who have already paid if it does change?
2: Yes. Uh, a, a, a debenture model is, is almost exclusively used in the not-for-profit sector. It, it is, the purpose of it, um, in terms of the economics, is cash flow, um, a, a large organisation shouldn't need the, the the cash flow that a debenture system gives. Um, that stated, Tulim have put a huge investment into the school and taken on uh, all all of the liabilities, uh, and they're quite extensive of, of the Jebowali Ali School. And one of them is gratuity. Um the, the actual, uh, sorry, gratuity uh, of staff, sorry, and the debenture. So, mm-hmm. the, 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 uh, yes, we we will work with the community to introduce a stage process of, of refund of the debenture for existing parents. And I'm, I'm sure that will go down extremely well with the parent cohort. Any new parent to the school um, and starting this year uh, who have already signed up will, will not pay. A debenture, and, and uh, the community needs to give us time to, you know, we've not even stepped into the school yet to to make sure that process is, is, is smooth. And the good news for parents today, and this is really really important, is their their debenture is secured. So financially, uh, the precarious situation the school was such that the debenture wasn't secure for existing parents. Um, one of the things that KHDA insisted on is that Talim secure the debentures of existing parents and, and, and we have done that to date.
0: What type of changes are you expecting to be able to introduce at Jebel Ali School over the next few years? Obviously, you've got slightly deeper pockets than they've had in the last few years.
2: Yeah, I, I actually believe that, that staff, that students and, and, and parents in the local community we'll see a a lot of positives. Uh, The the first thing that we will endeavour to do is retain the fantastic teachers that are in Jebowali School. I I know many of them personally um, and and they really are. It's a fantastic leadership team and a a fantastic uh, teaching uh, faculty and we will do everything we can to retain these teachers. Um, We will invest in CAPEX. You know, I've worked with, the school leadership team over the past couple of months getting ready for the announcement today. And, uh, you know, because of the precarious financial situation of the school, the investment in resources and uh, science equipment, etc., etc., has not been there. So I, I believe the, the parents and, and most importantly the, the VIPs who are the students Um, will see a difference in terms of the investment that, you said, a financially sound company like Kaleem can bring to the school.
0: Quite a business breakfast-style question for you here because uh, I want to know, what was your agreement with the Emirates REIT, which owned the land where the school is based, and what's the financial value of this transaction for you guys?
2: Yeah, I would like to thank uh, Thierry, who is CEO of Emirates Street, they've they've worked in partnership with Taleem, uh, uh the Toleem Board, and and, and with uh, Jebel Ali School Board as well. Um, the, the the sum of money is two hundred and thirty three point five million dirham investment by Talim in the school, and and over and above that, we will be, as I said, covering the liability of the school, which is extensive. Um, it's broken down in terms. Toleem will now. Uh, we we'll do now own the land and buildings, uh, 185 million investment in, in the property and land at the MAC, um, and, and we, we are also ensuring that the previous liabilities have ended as part of the 230.5 million investment. And, and I have to say that, that at every stage, the Dubai government have been extremely supportive of this transaction. Um, and, and, and I would like to, to thank the Dubai government for their support, and I'm sure Emirates Read and General Board would echo that. It's the good news. It's a story. Bye.
0: Oh, we lost a couple of the last centers but i got the general gist of this good news. Alan Williamson, thank you so much indeed for your time. I know you're a very busy man today uh, with that announcement just breaking. Uh, Alan Williamson, the CEO of Talim, thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And just to reiterate that breaking story, one of Dubai's oldest not-for-profit schools has been privatised. The parents at Jebel Ali School, which was established in 1977, were informed today that the school has been sold to the Talim Group. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7.
0: Now, since February 2022, Teenagers aged between 15 and 18 years have been allowed to apply for a juvenile work permit in the UAE while continuing with their education. Now, speaking on this programme, Abdullah al Ali Al-Nuemi, from the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratisation, told us the purpose behind the new permit.
3: This kind of initiative is one of many initiatives that the UAE works on in empowering uh, young generation, allowing them... uh, to do wise choices in terms of uh, their futures. This would allow future generations to be part of the labor market uh, in a very regulated and protected way, uh, allowing them also to be part of the development and the success of, uh, of the country.
0: Now, this will be the first summer that the teens can work, but are any of them actually taking up the opportunity? Are there any roles available? And if there are, what do they look like? And what do parents and teachers think about children getting summer jobs? Reporter Noni Edwards from the ARN News Centre has been looking into this topic and joins me now in the studio. Hi, Noni, how are you doing? Hi, Georgia. Happy Friday. Lovely to have you here in the morning. Normally, you do the afternoon shift, so we dragged you in slightly (laughs) early. I really appreciate that. how did you come to hear about uh, this topic? Yeah look we were hearing a lot from parents in the community it seems to be
4: a big and very interesting uh, issue that people are interested in there was a very animated discussion on one of the popular business networking groups on social media there were questions asked there was a mum of three Yana Samir she wanted to know where her three teenagers could find part-time jobs for summer because they seemed a bit thin on the ground so I called her up and asked her what the response was like.
5: I've got a lot of private messages. I've seen a lot of ladies who have offered various options. And I'm actually so overwhelmed that I think it's going to take me a while to go through everything and to sort like things out and just let the kids decide what they want to do.
4: So the demand is there, obviously. It's
0: just a matter of uh, matching up the demand with the supply. So the interesting thing is that parents are actually discussing this on networking groups mm. already. So clearly there's a high level of interest. But the online discussion, uh, you say, apparently at, at some stages did get a bit heated <laughs> because uh, there was a little bit of uh, complications around the nitty gritty of that juvenile work permit. What do we actually know about the legalities?
4: Okay, so first stop when I was looking into this is, uh, I asked the lawyers. I spoke with Habib Said. He's an employment law specialist at Squire Patton Boggs. He explained that the aim was for young people between the ages of 15 and 18 to have access to part-time employment and it allows companies to hire them only for part-time employment when they're in full-time studies. They need to be legally sponsored to apply for one, usually by their parent, who also needs to pro- provide written consent. I also need a medical fitness certificate too. Now, there are strict conditions on the nature of work that these children are allowed to, to undergo and I'll let Habib tell you those himself.
6: In terms of the actual work requirements themselves, parents need to make sure that the contract specifies this, which is that the work should not exceed more than six hours per day. There should be a one-hour break to ensure that the youth worker doesn't work more than four consecutive hours. And then the specific restrictions around just general engagement. So, for example, the teenager cannot be required to work between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. They should not be required to work overtime or on public holidays or weekends. And then the labour law and the supplementary executive regulations also talk about youth workers not being required to work in any kind of hazardous or strenuous job that harms the health and safety and there's a number of conditions attached to that
0: okay so that was habib saeed he's the employment law specialist at squire pattern Boggs. this is eye on education on the agenda
1: with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people
0: We are discussing internships and work experience on the programme today because this summer will be the first that teenagers are allowed to apply for these new juvenile work permits here in the UAE. It is going to be the first summer that they can legally work. And parents are getting excited, aren't they, Noni? Uh, Noni Edwards is joining me in the studio. She's a reporter from the ARN News Centre and she's been following this story. Hello again, Georgia. Yes, parents
4: are getting quite interested in this, but the particular discussion that I was looking at on uh, social media that got particularly heated was that they wanted opportunities for their children that involved being paid. A lot of people were offering internships. This particular mother, who was uh, Yana Samir, wanted her children, her three teenagers, to be paid. There are lots of helpful suggestions, but uh, Yana was adamant that, she, that they deserve to learn the value of money?
5: They should learn that they shouldn't be taken advantage of. Uh, they're teenagers and like they have a lot of expenses when they want to go out with their friends. They want a lot of things and they should know that they should earn some of that
3: at least.
0: Another parent on the discussion, uh, discussion Bethany
4: Wessel, was mm. very interesting. She also uh, emphasised that need to learn the value of money.
7: And when I asked her about it, she said that it was a rite of passage. I think it's something that we've seen as, as commonplace in, in many other parts of the world. Um, you know, for me specifically, having grown up in the United States, Uh, it was very common, uh, for young people, you know, usually around the ages of 15 to, to go out and get their first part-time job and, you know, give them an opportunity to learn how to be responsible, um, how to manage money and, you know, be able to find something that they could, you know, take ownership of and feel proud about. I think it's, it's wonderful. It's something that I did growing up, uh, went through a, a variety of different, roles when I was younger and right up through university kind of gave me some ideas about areas that I'm interested in and, and areas that I realized that I might not be interested in. Um, I think when we compare the idea of a teenager having a part-time job for compensation versus, you know, going out and having an internship uh, which is usually not paid. I, I think there's a place for that. And I would say that that place should probably be organized, you know, through the um, academic programs at schools or in the universities. But as far as, you know, going out and having a, just a good old-fashioned part-time job, I think kids today want to earn pocket money. And I think a lot of parents today want their kids to earn pocket money.
0: OK, so where does the law sit on the question of whether the juvenile work permits mandate a minimum salary? Because it's <laughs> clearly it's, it's all come down to money. It always comes down to money. Yeah, naturally. Um, I
4: put that question specifically to our employment law specialist who I've been speaking to, Habib Saeed from Squire Patton Boggs. As you'll hear, it's not really black and white.
6: It's classed as a juvenile work permit and it should be paid in the same way an employee is paying a normal employee and when you apply by the Tashil Centre they generally will require the employer to input a salary. Unfortunately there isn't a minimum salary as of yet in the UAE. There is a mention of a national minimum wage in the new labour law but unfortunately it hasn't quite yet been formalised. They're still discussing and I suspect we'll get a cabinet resolution in due course which speaks around that but in terms of the the pay. Very much so, there should be a pay element. There are, it does happen common in practice for individuals to come on these types of permits and be engaged on unpaid internships but strictly speaking from an immigration perspective and from a, I guess, from a compliance perspective, the employer, um, the company should offer some pop, some form of pay or they'll need to input that as part of the, the onboarding process with Tashil when they uh, populate the employment contract.
0: I know, now that is very interesting. I, I have to admit that obviously in radio, And most media jobs, you're expected to do a fair amount of work experience. And I I mean, I was not paid for that work experience. For years, I worked for free. Uh, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that in many ways, for me, it was something of a rite of passage. Now, you Mm -hmm. have been speaking to employers who are supportive of these young kids getting paid if they're doing the same job as an adult, for example.
4: Yes. So I was out and about at Index earlier this week, Mm. as you know, for Dubai i 103.8. I happened to chat with Vera Diekmann. She's the CEO and founder of the interior design studio XO Atelier. Now, she just happened to be debating the topic, is it okay to work for free? So it was kind of kismet, really, that I was speaking to her. I knew I had to record her views on this topic. I'm in general against working for free because for me, um, as soon as you have a benefit from someone's work or a value which created based on their work, and even if I put an intern on a research work for us to search for images for like maybe two or three hours it has an impact it has an impact and a value to my company and um, I think uh, a person who does this deserves the payment she also made a very big point in her industry of separating out charity work or pro bono work which a lot of professionals do in many kinds of industries for philanthropic reasons
0: okay who else have you been talking to because I think the difficulty for many teens is is finding these jobs Mm. Full circle here. So I
4: spoke with Lush Cosmetics. They're a global brand. We all know of them. Well-known employer of part-timers and teenagers. Caitlin Emke is their head of retail support here. And when I spoke to her, she said that Lush have been employing part-timers for three or four years now here in the UAE. There has been a pretty clunky system in in the past before the introduction of this this work permit. Now, the part-time contract model as it was, but there are significant advantages to a retail business of having part-timers employed. I'm sure
7: you know most of your listeners and you yourself know that part-time is not really common here. Um, but if anyone's worked in retail in any other country or capacity, it is pretty much the only way to make your retail business model work successfully in order to have the right number of staff on during your busy times and not be overstaffed during your non-busy times.
4: So, economically advantageous, yes. She also had a lot to say about teenagers being on the on the team as employees. We
7: love having them on the shop floor. They're energetic. They learn really fast and they're passionate. They love to have fun. Lush is a really great store to just come in and shop, have a good time and be yourself as well. So, I think it's so important to have a wide variety of different ages to service customers. Um, but fresh teenagers definitely bring a different energy to the shop floor that just keeps your work day going. It's really nice.
0: Okay, so over the last 24 hours, Zina Zalamea, producer of The Agenda, has been out and about asking companies uh, how they feel about hiring interns and whether or not they would explore hiring teenagers as well. This is Claire Micheletti, She's the joint MD of Cosmopol, giving her opinion.
8: We already run a very rigorous internship programme, We have great partnerships with 2454 in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi University and various international universities. And we find that giving interns a very practical approach to the workforce is something that is useful for us as employers and also for the youth. They get really a nice overview of of what our industry is. So we're in communication, so they get to Understand what a consultancy does, but also what all our clients do. So it's a very, very rich and intensive uh, program. For employers, having youth going through internships or part time work before is also very enriching because you have fresh graduates that show up for their first period of work that don't have purple glasses on that don't have unrealistic expectations they already have had that insight into what the workforce is really like and the ups and downs that go with that and they are ready to hit the ground running.
0: Riaz Sutawala owns Freestyle Parks, Street Maniacs and Air Maniacs, which are both huge favourites for my children. Uh, This is what Riaz had to say about hiring
3: teenagers. Both at Street Maniacs and at Air Maniacs, we have a company policy whereby we hire students to work both as part-timers and for work experience. We feel it is incredibly important that the younger generation have the opportunity to bridge the gap between the academic world and the commercial one. It is very beneficial for us as well, since our clientele that are usually aged between, say, four and 13 years old, see these students as role models and enjoy interacting with them. So it's a win-win for all parties involved. We know how difficult it is for students to find work and work experience, so we are honoured to be able to fill that gap.
4: It just makes
0: sense to have teenagers operating a trampoline park, doesn't it? To be fair, to be fair, it does. It's, very, it's a very energetic environment. Uh, and so they would, uh, you can imagine them, although there might be, you know, there are also sort of health environment, you know, there are, there's health and safety questions as well. So they would still need to be trained, definitely. Uh, Polly Williams, meanwhile, got in touch. Now she's the managing director of Tish Tash, which is a PR company. They hire interns regularly. This is what she had to say about hiring teenagers. It's
5: really exciting to know that we can now look at hiring interns that are a little bit younger that are maybe looking to see what options they have for the future. The reason that we love hiring interns is there's three reasons really. They come with a lot of passion and innovation, which is really lovely to see and it makes means they're hungry and they're excited and they come with some really great ideas and things that we maybe haven't seen from being inside the business. They also tend to question us because they come with a lot of confidence and that's really great too because it makes us think differently about some of the things that we're doing. Interns also, especially of the younger age, tend to be incredibly technologically savvy and digitally savvy, which is really great for our industry. And the other reason we love interns is it helps helps our own existing teams to grow because they're teaching and they're imparting their knowledge and they're also learning new skills by doing that as well.
0: Polly also admitted that hiring young talent isn't without its challenges. It can
5: be difficult for our existing teams to find enough time to train and nurture interns as they should. We would never want to be the kind of agency that hires an intern for them to just make coffee all day. That is not the point of an intern. They're here to learn from us and to gain new skills. So we do need to make sure that our teams have the capacity to teach and to support as much as possible. It can also be quite difficult for interns coming in especially in the industry that we work in, there tends to be a feeling that it's going to be very glamorous and very exciting. But the reality is there's a lot of basic admin requirements. We all have to roll our sleeves up, uh, pack some influencer bags, do some Excel sheets. And that can sometimes be a bit of a shock for some people. And especially those that maybe haven't used some of the typical programs that we use within an office environment. Just learning those basics can be quite difficult for them. And that can take up a lot of time at the beginning.
0: Fascinating stuff there from Polly, really teasing out the uh, the pros and cons of hiring interns uh, and, of course, hiring young people. Thank you so much, Noni. You are fascinating welcome. stuff, Noni Edwards. There reporting, obviously a valued member of the ARN News Centre staff. If we want to find out more information, where do we go? It's all on the ARN News Centre, and this
4: particular feature is on our local UAE news section. Thank, Thank you, you very
0: much indeed. This is Eye on Education on the agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7.
0: Now, the first class of the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation are graduating this summer, and in celebration, they are exhibiting their final project. They've got 32 of them. They focus on a broad spectrum of subjects, including fashion and child development. Now, the Institute is the region's first and only university exclusively dedicated to design and innovation, and its syllabus focuses on preparing its graduates for the workplaces of the future. Now, that's going to be a hot topic over the next hour, but joining us now to to explain how they do that, what their educational process is, is the Dean of the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation, Hani Asfor. Thank you so much for joining us on the line, Hani. How are you? I'm
9: good. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's lovely to have you here. Now, one of the big topics on our programme today is the future proofing of education for basically Industry 4.0. How does the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation do that? What is your focus?
9: Our focus is definitely uh, student-centered, and we have a charge to future-proof them at a time when we know that many jobs would be uh, disappearing and newer jobs would be coming on the market. And so what we do to future-proof them is that we we do what is called hybridization or cross-pollination of different disciplines. So from day one, our students learn how to be designers as well as technologists, as well as strategists. So they learn how to put a business plan together, combine it with robotics or combine it with blockchain or the NFTs, they've been working on NFTs and the metaverse for the past year. And they learn of course, the, the principles of design thinking which starts with solving problems through empathy. So we call, what we do to our students is we teach them how to humanize uh, technology.
0: How do their projects, which are going on display now, how do those graduate projects illustrate that ethos? How you know is is the the proof in the pudding essentially?
9: Absolutely, and I'm very proud of what our first batch has done, especially that this hybridization has for them produced something natural that our generation, the older generation, we don't take so naturally, like the integration of the latest technology. So we have. students who have produced devices to help children with ADHD uh, using gaming and using brainwave analysis through this device. We have another one who has done uh, garments for refugees. So we have another one who has done uh, devices to help pediatric um, uh, physiotherapy results to be more effective. And as you can see, there's a pattern here that these students are very much empathetic to to our fellow humans and to our uh, planet. There's a lot of uh, attention on sustainable solutions, a lot of attention on giving back to the community and then using creative thinking to solve these problems. The fourth industrial revolution requires a certain mindset, which is creative thinking, uh, thinking about the community and uh creative problem solving. And this is what we teach our students through hybridization. They're able to innovate across different disciplines, empathize with different types of um, uh, uh, situations, and be able to critically look at what we call the wicked problems of the world, and then try to come up with a solution that starts with understanding and empathizing with the end user.
0: Hani, thank you so much for your time. You have brilliantly introduced uh, the uh, the hot topic for our next hour, which is how to prepare students, how to change the education system for the future to prepare them for this fourth industrial revolution. It sounds like the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation is doing it already. Uh, Hani, as for the dean of that institution, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
9: Thanks so much. Keep up the good work.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
9: With the Royal Grammar
1: School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Over the next hour, we're going to be discussing what could be classified as the most important issue of our generation, how we prepare our children for the future of work. Now, the subject has been a core topic this week at the World Economic Forum, which of course has been taking place in Davos in Switzerland. Now, drone piloting, would you believe it, is one job that could be in demand in the future. Andy ficinich and Nathambe Mapwanze are both from Wing Copter. Have a listen to this.
5: We are currently optimizing supply chains in Malawi, specifically delivering medicine.
6: Transit is not possible through roads, so drones come in and help poorer and less advantaged people have access to medicine.
5: And what's really interesting right now with the drone industry is we're seeing drone academies in Benin and Sierra Leone that are essentially addressing the skill gap in Africa when it comes to this high-tech technology.
6: So I see drone technology being such an emerging market that allows for opportunities, not just in piloting, but in maintenance, in auxiliary staff, and in other sectors
5: For many people, automation is a scary word because they think of machines that are essentially taking away their job. What we all have to realize is that through technology, we are actually going to have better standards, better skilled jobs, more opportunity, and traditional jobs will transition into new and more exciting jobs for the future.
0: Okay, so that's just one example of a future job that you might not have considered. And as ever, the UAE is preparing itself for those imminent changes in the fourth industrial revolution. Now, this week, the country announced a wholesale shake up of the education system with several new ministers appointed to senior roles and a restructuring of the Education and Human Resources Council. They also set up a new federal authority for early education that's designed to follow child development from birth to fourth grade. And now, Announcing the changes, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE and ruler of Dubai, said the goal of the changes is to ensure graduates are well prepared for the workplaces of the future. He said the education sector today is not the same as yesterday, and our ambitions today are not like yesterday. So, what needs to change? in the education sector. In order to discuss this subject fully, we're going to be joined over the next hour by a veritable roll call of eminent guests. First up, I am joined in the studio by Dr. Simon Camby. Now, he is Group Director of Education for Cognita Schools. Uh, Dr. Camby, lovely to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. absolute pleasure cognita schools has got 90 schools in europe latin america middle east and asia and here in the uae they own the royal grammar school guildford dubai and of course horizon school also joining us live on teams is dr sonia ben jafar who is ceo of the abdullah al-garrer foundation for education hi uh, sonia how are you doing
10: I'm doing well. It's uh, great to be invited. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, uh, both of you. Really fantastic to have you on the line. Uh, I'm going I'm to hopscotch between the two of you because I've got two fantastic eminent professionals in the space who I know have given this a lot of thought. Uh, let me start with uh, you, Simon. Uh, what do we primarily need to change uh, in your view? You know, do we need to primarily change what we're teaching?
11: So, a great question, um, for sure, because I think we always need to be mindful of the quality of education and you know, the content for children. It, it's not, one of the things that I struggle with is a little bit when people talk about the future as if it's not now. The reality is what's happening in classrooms around the world today is about the future. Children aren't waiting for something to happen. Though I do sometimes wonder whether we focus on the wrong question to start with. I'm not sure it's all about what, But really, perhaps first, we should be thinking about why. Why are we educating children? And the why helps us to understand the what.
0: That is, um, that is very interesting. So, so why are we? <laughs> uh, great question. Well, let,
11: let's let's make this a four year study on exactly. <laughs> so, um, just yeah. condense
0: it into like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I
11: mean, I think for me, I mean, there are clearly so many, so many answers to that question. And, an, and I'm not suggesting there's a right or wrong. But I mean, in the past, we know that the the why was more about well, you just gather some qualifications, you get some certificates, and that takes you on. We know that that's absolutely insufficient now. I mean, if I were to pick two two things that i think are so so important that we talk a lot about the first is we use this term agency and by agency we really just mean have children got that sense of self-empowerment that they feel able to navigate their own future and that they are they are empowered and you know researchers talk about self-efficacy so that, that notion of self-efficacy and engagement um, but then the second thing is adaptability because we know that all of our young people are going to work in careers with the, the absolute necessity to learn relearn unlearn, learn again so they've got to be adaptable so i think if you get agency and adaptability that's they are fantastic so they if if, if that is true if they are helpful wise then you start to think about what
0: I mean, uh, Dr. Sonia, they, these must be issues that the government here in the United Arab Emirates is, is considering in depth. And they have made these massive sweeping changes. We've got new ministers. We've got new departments, new authorities. What is your reaction to the changes that they've made uh, to the education system here, this big shake up that we've seen this week?
10: Well, Uh, I think that if we take what Simon said in in terms of why we're educating um, on the basis of future reskilling, but it's really now skilling, self-actualization, a form of civic identity, you know, that means that we need skills like creativity, creativity, leadership, reasoning to create um, people with some executive skills. And So when you look at the restructure and you reflect on what Simon just talked about and what we've just heard about in the World Economic Forum on the future demands from, you know, climate realities, technological realities, this is a government that has just thought, okay, we're going to act as opposed to continuously talking about what needs to be done. And I'm personally extremely excited about the new Federal Authority for Quality and Standards of Education. Um, This is a government that has decided we're measuring educational outcomes, student performance and efficiency of the educational processes. We're going to put some rigor and we're going to be using data to make the decisions. And we're going to do this with an authority that supports the other ministries um, from early childhood. So we're super excited about that all the way to higher ed and um, the lifelong learning piece. So what's really nice about this strategy and the shifts is that it is comprehensive and holistic.
0: You definitely get the impression that they are acting now, that they, they, they get that, um, that they understand that the future is now in the way that Simon just explained, and that there's no sort of hanging around. And I'm also fascinated at uh, uh, one of the appointments of one of the ministers, because uh, I think it was um, uh, Ahmed Balul, he used to be in charge of entrepreneurship and small and medium-sized businesses. And now he's being pulled into education, which is a very clever appointment in many ways.
10: So His Excellency uh, used to be the Minister of Higher Education um, a little while back when I started at the foundation, interestingly enough. So I've had the privilege and my team has had the privilege of working and engaging with him and his team when we launched the Consortium for Online Learning in the UAE with nine universities. Um, He then moved to SME and I have every confidence that he will promote the alignment of education with future market needs um, to benefit the youth and all of us. And I think he's going to go beyond the obvious of, you know, education, training, upskilling, reskilling. um, And he's really going to go to that next level for direct market cases and insights from industry partners integrating into and with the education sector, that next level of work integrated learning and just earlier you were speaking about, you know, internships and what that means, you know, connecting the R and D from universities and higher education to better support innovation in industries and how we can make that connections. Um, he really gets the intersection between the two and I'm very excited to work with him again.
0: Now both of you have, have mentioned the sort of interpersonal, the softer skills that that our children are going to need for the for the future, for the industrial revolution of the future future people call it industry 4.0 i mean uh, are the days of teaching english and maths over you know what skills what subjects should our teacher our, our children be learning simon i'll come to you first on that yeah,
11: thanks georgia um i actually don't think the days of teaching knowledge content are over but but on their own they are insufficient so I think actually you need knowledge in order to be able to apply it to transfer it I mean they are the higher order skills but but on its own it's not enough so I think and I I don't think this is something that's new to schools. schools are doing this today and I think universities build on it that they've got very clear knowledge expectations but actually the interpersonal and I am going to use the word soft skills, but I don't really like the term. But I don't know what the better term is. Um, th- those other skills that wrap around it are so so important.
0: So I've heard mention of things like uh, learning citizenship, learning uh, empathy. Are those uh, are those sort of? Do you think you could actually, instead of having math, science, chemistry, empathy, citizenship in the in the timetable? <laughs>
11: um, I definitely think it's part of the curriculum for me. I wouldn't suggest that you have empathy on the timetable. I would suggest that it weaves throughout everything you do. Um, you know, it's a little bit like if, if you have a healthy eating week. <laughs> it implies that once a year you can think about it and for the rest of the year, you know, just carry on as normal. So I think what we want is a more sort of um, mature way of looking at, at the school curriculum, which means that these skills are blended throughout and that the children have the opportunity to apply them. However, that said, what I would say is we know that the majority of these um, competencies are malleable. You can learn them. You can get better at them. So teachers, for sure, can and do shine a light on them, but I don't think it's a a once-a-week or once-a-term item.
8: This is
0: Eye on Education on the Agenda.
11: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai,
1: passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: We are discussing the future of education on our special segment today. That's as the UAE has announced a shake-up of its school system. On the table for a discussion today is everything <laughs> from what should be taught and how it should be taught, all in order to prepare our children for the future world of work. And we want to hear from you. Please do get in touch. If you've got any ideas of things that you would like to add to the curriculum, 4001, uh, or of course, you can WhatsApp us on 04871 But don't worry if you haven't got any ideas. I've got two experts with me right now, Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, who's CEO of the Abdullah al-Ghorea Foundation for Education, and also Dr. Simon Camby, who's Group director of Education for Cognita Schools. Uh, Now, Sonia, I'm going to come to you first because uh, Simon had the last word in the last segment. And we're talking about the idea that, you know, subjects like maths and science might die out, or at least that was my theory, and be replaced by other subjects such as empathy or uh, citizenship. What do you think to that?
10: Um, I'm, I'm going to agree with Simon that we do need the basics, um, like reading and writing and, and the basics, but not alone, um, and that we should be infusing executive skills within it. Um, I'm super excited that there's uh, going to be um, a very big focus on early childhood education um, because those executive skills, the earlier we can teach them, the better um, we'll be at them in terms of human beings throughout our lifespan. So if we can get it right in the early years, um, and I'm, I'm talking about executive skills like self-control, you know, listening to somebody, ha- being able to monitor yourself and being able to allow somebody else to have their say and finding that empathy and that compassion within it. Um, And those are kind of the underlying skills that you need. But you also need to be able to have the automaticity of being able to decode a word so that you can read it and so that you can learn, so you can access all the information. And one is not at the cost of the other when education is done right. And so it's going to be very exciting to see how this um, moves forward so that we can promote that alignment between educational outcomes and the future economic development needs and the future humanitarian needs that um, we expect this young generation to walk into.
0: It's so interesting that you mentioned the the younger children there, because uh, just off air, uh, Simon also mentioned that as a key component to these reforms that are being put place here in the UAE. Simon, why? I mean, I mean it, it sounds obvious, you know, why, why? Well, we know why they're aiming for the younger children. But it, it, is that why is that surprising to you?
11: Well, I think it's because so often in education reform, um, particularly when you're thinking about reform in schools, the K-12 system, it very much appears to focus as if the group of students that you're thinking about are 16 to 18 year olds about to go into university. And of course, that's the end of their their schooling period. But of course, children don't just start as a 16-year-old, um, they grow. So I think that that focus that Sonia talked about in the early years is absolutely critical. And and in many ways, actually, the, the early years curriculum is advanced in this area. Sometimes you see some of the very best practice in a school, um, particularly about aspects of the curriculum being blended together in the early years. And I think, I mean, for me, there are, I mean, there are so many skills, and I, I love Sonia's term, the executive skills. Um, there are so many skills, but one that we're really, really focusing on developing is that idea of metacognition. Now that's a bit of a fancy word but all we're really meaning there is a child's ability to stand outside themselves and recognise what's going on for them in the moment. But then the most important bit is that they can do something with it. So self-regulate. I mean, that from a very basic thing about not running across a road through to not having an argument and being able to control emotions, and then cognitively thinking about their preferences for learning. But they all start in the early years. They start with three-year-olds when, when you're having that conversation. So it's just critical. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, I, the, we're going to continue the conversation of what should be taught in schools. But I just because we're going to uh, Dr. Sonia is going to be we're going to lose Dr. Sonia at half past. I just want to ask you, uh, Sonia, whether the, the style of teaching needs to change as well and, and how you would change that style of teaching for the schools of the future.
10: That's a, that's a big question. Uh, yes, that's a loaded sorry. question. I, I, I'll make some friends, but I won't make some, and some people will stop being my friend. Um, I, I do think that the way in which we're teaching in some places is a little bit um, archaic and we do need to rev it up and bring it into the century. the The students are not coming in cold and a lot of great, amazing teachers know that. And there's some very good schools that are doing some interesting work for that personalization piece. Um, but we do need to start thinking about how to use um, adaptive technologies to support teachers so that um, we can automate some of the the support systems for them. And that way they can use that higher order thinking that, that what, what they went to university for. How do I differentiate for one kid versus another so that I can scaffold and and make certain programs for them and make certain activities for them so that they can all grow in their own way um, and still maintain the sense of well-being, make it a safe space um, so that you can know your weaknesses as as a kid or as a young adult, and say, okay, this is something that I need to work on, and I have the support structures, and I know how to work on it. Versus um, having too many kids in a classroom and saying, okay, I'm going to teach to the middle, and I'm going to try and differentiate, but I don't have time to think about how to get this done. And I think that there's a balancing act there that we really want to see happen in the schools.
0: It's amazing how many times when I'm reading articles about education about at the moment, uh, how many times people say that children need to learn how to fail. Uh, and Sonia, do you just you just spelled that out in some details as well? Uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Sonia Ben Jafar is CEO of the Abdullah Al ghara Foundation for Education. Uh, we are going to go to a quick news break now, and then we will be coming back to continue this conversation. Uh, Dr. Simon Canby, uh, staying with me here in the studio, Group Director of Education for Cognita schools and you are having your say as well. Uh, One person here says the curriculum needs to be more universal for example if history is being taught more of a world history rather than local history which might not be relevant to all the student group. In particular I'm talking about British schools. In my opinion they're really good it's just the content in some subjects is only uh, relevant for Britain not regionally. Another comment here saying in regards to the current topic I'm an elementary teacher and I think it's essential that there be time on the timetable similar to P- PSHCE in the UK. What's, what's that, Simon?
11: Personal, social, health and citizenship education.
0: Perfect, thank you. That's the, the prime focus is mental health, positive psychology and body positivity and health. There needs to be explicit teaching of these skills and strategies to support our students and staff alike. These need to be then embedded in the school culture to create a community that can thrive and support each other. Interesting comments coming in. This is Eye on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to u7
0: okay so we are discussing the future of education in our special segment today that's because the UAE has announced a shake-up of its schools system we're discussing everything from what should be taught and how it should be taught in order to prepare our children for the future world of work I've got two experts with me uh, Dr Simon Camby who's group director of education for cognita schools has remained in the studio He made a mistake coming in. We're not going to let him out. Uh, And for a new perspective, we're also joined on the line by Professor Tyg O'Donovan. Now, he's Deputy Vice Principal of Academic Leadership and Head of the School of Engineering and Physical Sciences at Heriot-Watt University, Dubai. Hello there, Tyg. How are you?
12: I'm very well, and good afternoon to you.
0: Great to have you on the radio. I'm going to come to you first because uh, Simon is trapped in the studio, can't escape anyway. Um, and I'd like to ask, you know, what is what are your views on the future of education? What do we need to change? Is it the subjects, or is it the style of teaching, or is it both?
12: I think what we have to start with is understand that education has been changing and will continue to change, and it's important that it continues to change because. We have to ask ourselves, what are we creating? Why, why are we educating in the first place? We're educating people, certainly, to uh, contribute to the workforce. Um, we need them to uh, contribute future skills. And I think it's that word future skills that we have to focus on. The skills market is changing. It is dramatically changing at the moment. So we certainly have to think about not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it. And uh, if we kind of appreciate that the jobs of today perhaps are not the jobs of tomorrow, then we have to put in those uh, transferable skills and how we work and those leadership skills um, um, instill in all our graduates so they can contribute positively to industry, to the economy, to society at large um, for the future, yeah.
0: I mean, you're uh, head of the School of Engineering and Physical Sciences. I mean, the hope is that graduates from your program will indeed be ready for this new industrial revolution for some reason i think of engineering and physical sciences as very futuristic i mean am i right
8: in that sense
12: <laughs> you are future yes it is of course engineering but engineering has been around for millennia as well so um, but it is it's always at the forefront of new tech but tech nowadays is certainly it's all around us we're all quite familiar with it but it also brings in so much more it's not just a piece of technology in your hand that doesn't happen by chance it might technically it might work in a really good way but you have to involve people from social sciences and the human factors that are involved in that you have to think about business and economics and marketing because that's everything goes together to make sure that that piece of tech is going to be successful and what does success really mean success means that we we want it I suppose that there's market potential uh, for it and generally it's virtuous, it helps society uh, and uh, it helps us to move forward. So yeah, engineers are certainly at the core of it, but they're not alone. We have to work together.
0: I mean, my big topic uh, for this half of the hour is, you know, do we need to change how we teach? Uh, have you changed the way in which you teach over the last few years? Because I've got this sense from uh, Dr. Simon that, that, you know, the future is now, you know, there's no point going, oh, well, let's do it in five years time. You know, have you changed how you teach now?
12: Absolutely. I mean, COVID obviously has accelerated um, a change in how we teach. But um, we have been changing all the time. I think, you know, education is certainly at the forefront of change because, well, you know, it has to be. It, it is creating those graduates that will have, you know, that impact on society. So, yes, we're probably changing at a faster rate now and we we have different ethos within university things like learning by doing or being immersed in the environment so that you are working in a campus or working in groups or working across boundaries across time zones uh, with teams around the world these are all the ways in which we have to learn or the ways in which we are learning because that's how Industry is working, and that's how future industry will we'll work as well. But we probably don't know the future. I mean, I know the future is now, uh, but we, we don't know what it is. So, what we can do is prepare people to be so agile that they can adapt, but also so visionary, I suppose, because they will determine the future.
0: Professor Teague from the Teague O'Donovan from Harriet Watt University, thank you very much indeed for your time. An absolute pleasure to speak to you. I'll come back to Dr. Simon Camby, Group Director of Education for Cognita Schools now. Uh, learning by doing, Professor Teague just mentioned. Now obviously he's teaching university students, whereas Cognita Schools focuses from, you know, the, the three to eighteen year olds. Is that something that you guys that your teachers are already doing in your schools?
11: I would say so, yeah. I mean, I think we see some fantastic practice um, around that. And I I think the point that was just made, actually, COVID has changed that a little bit as well. Um, I think there's always more we can do. But yes, we can definitely see learning by doing... What I think teachers also need to think about is where can they add most value. And I think that's perhaps a consideration that we haven't historically had. Because I think historically, teaching was about imparting knowledge. We know that it's now much more than that. The question that I always ask teachers is, you know, what, what would be the most appropriate way for this aspect of teaching and learning to be delivered? So, for example, for older students particularly, They can do some things online. The knowledge acquisition they can do in a much smarter way and actually often a way that they prefer so that we then reserve the time with the teacher for the um, really uh, pulling apart knowledge, using it, applying it, thinking about how to use it in different ways. That's where the teacher can add most value.
0: Really interesting to hear those points. Mira has got in touch uh, saying, uh, I think that children should be taught topics uh, like, uh, in fact, Mira says, I think we need to reassess curricula versus time allocated to cover it. And also rethink how remedial students are just carried along without serious attention and focused differentiation. That's one person. Another person's text in saying, topics like empathy and resilience and creating a real sense of belonging should be introduced. I mean, do you think that teachers need to learn how to become more collaborative in their style of teaching or am I out of touch is that a style of teaching already established in schools? I think,
11: um, I, I mean, I, I see lots of fantastic practice in this area um, with teachers really working hard at ensuring that there's collaboration student to student because it's not just student to teacher. The student to student relationship is critical um, and then student to teacher as well. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see that just routinely going going on in classrooms. I think that's such a regular part of what teachers can do.
0: How can teachers balance the need especially in the early years to just learn the basics? I mean there's no sexy way of learning times tables. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. I've <laughs> I've tried it in the car but basically you slightly have to learn by rote. Like yeah. it needs to go in. Never mind the fact that in part of my brain's going but hang on a sec they they're never going to have to do this. There's going to be a calculator at all times, but never mind. You have to learn, um, you know, certain things have to be learned by rote. How can teachers balance that with this whole new style of education that's supposed to be empathetic and collaborative uh, when actually when it comes down to it, some things just need to be learned?
11: Yeah, and I actually don't have a problem with that. I think sometimes people get a bit heated about it either has to be this or that. And actually that's that's quite reductive. The reality is there are just some things, as you say, I totally agree with you, some things that children need to just know and be able to do so that there's some, you know, automatic... Um, you know, just response to it because those things are really, really helpful. And actually the reason they're helpful is they enable children. And I'm sorry if this sounds a bit geeky, but it enables us to deal with what Psychologists call cognitive load, in that we can all only focus on so much at any one time. So, by making some things automatic for children, you are then allowing them to use their headspace to focus on other things. So, it—I it, don't see any problem with um, even the drilling of some of those real basic skills, because they allow for education to accelerate in other areas. So, we shouldn't feel guilty about that. And as a parent you know, lighten lighten up on yourself. You know, it's okay. It's okay to drill.
0: (laughs) It's okay okay to drill spellings. It's okay to drill uh, those times tables. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
11: With
1: the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Okay, we are discussing the future of education on our special segment today. There are many education models that are being introduced in different parts of the world. Award-winning actor Vivek Anand Oberoi was in town recently to introduce something called the fidgetal model. That's P-H-Y, digital Model, where teachers are available 24-7. It's mainly for Indian students who want to get into the most prestigious universities. His edtech venture is called iScholars. This is what he had to say. And
13: the idea was to get the children to get access to such teachers on a one-on-one basis almost. So with a complete focused class, two hours live, one teacher teaching only 30 kids at a time in a two-way interactive structure. And that structure allowed the children to benefit tremendously in all the kind of courses that we've created that help to train for competitive exams, whether it's NEAT to become doctors, where we've had a phenomenal success rate of um, 30% of our students cracking NEAT, um, or competitive exams like JEE. And and that's the whole idea. The whole idea is to provide them this incredible access to good teaching, a very well-structured module, and that's the magic of the fidgetal model, that even though they're in their own geographic location, they're getting access to great teachers from the biggest cities of India.
0: Okay so that's one style of education. We've also been speaking to uh, some professors from the university system and we asked them what do they think the future of education looks like. Dr Alberto Peralta is Director of Innovation at Abu Dhabi University.
14: From my perspective the higher education is probably heading towards helping students become more employable. They need to develop to gain skills to be flexible adaptable, and to some extent, handle uncertainty. That probably is better achieved through a combination of skills. Experts these days are never again uh, experts in only one field, but a combination of more than two, three, four fields. And that means computer science, business, and legal. Uh, That means probably engineering, psychology, and uh, computer science, they, through handling uncertainty, uh, will be also better equipped to lead. And uh, so leadership these days is not only about uh, soft skills and hard skills, but the right combination
0: they need to learn how to lead. That is an interesting point. Uh, Dr. Sedwin Fernandez has also got in touch. He's the Pro Vice-Chancellor at Middlesex University and this is what he has to say on the future of education.
3: I started teaching 40 years ago at the tertiary level and back then the future of education was being debated too. In those days university education was focused on providing subject-specific technical skills to students. So, for example, if you were in an accounting and finance program, the main emphasis was on delivery of the assigned syllabus and not much else. Obviously, just technical competency is not enough in the real world. Good universities like mine, along with the technical competence in the subject area, develop students into lifelong learners as the subject matter of any discipline is constantly changing. Students require analytical and research skills, critical thinking skills, cross-cultural understanding, creativity and effective communications to become lifelong learners. There will be more emphasis on sustainability, ethics, empathy, inclusivity, health and well-being.
0: My goodness me, there's a fairly decent list. Dr Simon Canby, Group Director of Education at Cognita Schools, has remained in the studio. His focus is, of course, children aged between three and 18. Your final thoughts are on the future of education and what we need to do to get it right, Simon? You know, yeah. just, just everything summed up in one sentence would be great. Well, wow. <laughs> I
3: think
11: we shouldn't worry too much because every time I have a conversation with young people in our schools, they are amazing. And I think we should wholly, wholly keep thinking about this, but we shouldn't pass on any anxiety about it because they are just tremendous...
0: Oh, that's very positive thinking there and a very good way of looking at it because ultimately, like you said, right at the beginning of our conversation, there's no point looking into the future for educational solutions. You know, it is right now. Our children are learning. the here and now. And so the change needs to come very quickly. And that is why it's so great that the UAE has decided to shake up its school system uh, with all those new ministers and obviously that authority that will focus on the younger years. What a great hour of conversation. My goodness me, we've covered so much. It's been a great pleasure to have so many uh, eminent thinkers on the programme today. Not least, Dr. Simon Canby, Group Director of Education for cognito Schools. He's very kindly stayed with me throughout the whole hour. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. Sir. It's been a pleasure. I hope to pleasure. see you again soon. And that's all from the Ion on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.